It's good to be back with you today. Um, every week here at the porch, it's a mystery. Well, there's two mysteries, right? Where is John going to be teaching and is he going to be wearing a new hat? And the answer is in our family room, in our apartment, not the van this week. And uh, no, I didn't buy a new hat. I bought three new hats. So this is the first one, the tie-dye giants hat. What do you guys think? Pretty great, huh? Um, anyway, if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 9. We're going to keep going in the story today. Um, I'm going to be swiveling in my little office chair here because... Um, I had physical therapy today for my back and I forgot all about it. And uh, I thought it was right before I had to film this and then uh, turns out my back hurts uh, something fierce. So I'm sitting in a chair today because uh, I don't think I can stand up for an entire sermon. Um, but anyway, grab your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 9. Um, if you have um, the, you know, if you're following along online, you can do all that there. The Uversion app and all that is in, um, the link to that is on the website. So if you want to pause the video and figure that out. Um, today we're going to be getting a little more philosophical in the introduction. Um, it's funny because when I was in college, I, I always thought, oh, man, I'm not going to like philosophy. And it turns out I like it a lot. And even when I was a kid, I, I, <laughs> this is going to sound stupid, but I, I, found myself one time even asking, or a couple different times, asking questions as I was a kid, and I was just wondering stuff that turned out that uh, were just philosophical questions, right? So when I was a kid, I remember having this super like philosophical thought, how do I know that all of this around me, how do I know this is real, right? How do I know I'm not just some kid uh, in another part of the world who's asleep and having a dream that I'm this kid here in San Francisco? Nobody can prove to me that that's not true. And so I remember thinking that as a kid, like just kind of wondering about that, right? Like, how do I know for sure that I'm who I'm supposed to be and all that stuff? Um, well, it turns out philosophers have been kind of asking that question for a long time and uh, asking the, the question, what is reality? What is real? And Plato, in um, uh, his writing, The Republic, he tells a story, and I think I've used this story before, but it's good. I, I'll use it again. I don't care. You guys can hear the same thing twice sometimes. Um, but they call it Plato's cave, right? The allegory of the cave. And the story goes like this. Imagine that there's a bunch of dudes, a couple dudes, um, paraphrasing here with the dudes. Uh, these, there's a couple dudes, and they're in a cave. And they've grown up in a cave, and they're chained up in this cave, and they're facing a wall in the cave in kind of the almost darkness. And all they know of the entire world is sitting in this cave for their entire lives with their two buddies. And stuff is happening behind them in the real world. And the shadows of those things are shining on the wall in front of them in the cave. And growing up, they think that the shadows are what's real, that the world is made up of these, these shadows. Then one of these dudes totally escapes from his chain somehow. He gets out of the cave. And after the light adjusts and all that to his eyes and takes a while, I'm kind of skipping over some stuff here, but uh, he gets out and he sees the real world for what it really is. And it's amazing, right? It's not shadows, right? Here's the real world. Um, and so he comes back and he starts to tell the other guys, hey guys, this, this is what the world is really like. Um, and then nobody believes him. And, you know, they don't believe that the shadows aren't what's real because they're looking at the shadows. This is what what's real. Now, without really diving into what Plato was getting at with his allegory of the cave, where he talks about... Uh, forms and all that stuff. We're not going to get into all that. Um, let's just take this story for the basics, right? That guy thought that the shadows were real, but then he had this experience that completely changed what he thought reality was. Three of Jesus's disciples today, I just did this, three of, three of Jesus's disciples today are going to have a reality changing experience, like the guy who got up and walked out of Plato's cave. 
Now, let me just set the context here for this passage before we really start to dive in. Um, a couple weeks ago, Jesus gathered his disciples together, and he said, who do you guys think that I am? Or who do people say that I am? Ah, the prophets, John the Baptist, come back from the dead, whatever. Well, who do you say I am? And Peter speaks up, and he's like, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus goes, yeah, I am. But here's the thing. You don't really know what that means. You think you know what that means, but uh, you, you don't. You don't really know. So let me explain it to you. And he says, the Messiah is not this political king who's going to kick out the Romans. The Messiah, he's like me, what I'm going to do is I'm going to be the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. And the disciples are just like, whoa, this is nuts. And then last week he tells them, and because you were my disciples, you are also going to suffer. And you're going to have to, to be a disciple means being willing to take up a cross and, um, and follow me and to suffer. He's like, if I'm suffering uh, to bring you salvation, you know, like you're not better than me. You're not, you're not above suffering if I'm not above suffering and I'm your Lord. And so sometimes his disciples are called to suffer. But then at the end of that section that we read last week, there was this transitional verse. And I said, I'm kind of just going to, you know, we're going to let it lead us into the next passage. Um, it was Luke 9, 27. Um, so let me read this to you here. But I tell you that uh, truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. So he's telling them the Messiah is going to suffer and uh, you guys are going to suffer. Then he says in the end of that, he's like, but it's totally going to be worth it. You know, with eternal perspective, you're going to be glad to have suffered for the kingdom of God. And some of you guys are going to see that kingdom before, like very soon, right away. You guys are going to see that kingdom. And I told you there were a few options as to what that means talking about um, you're going to see the kingdom of God. Oh, I just noticed a bunch of creepy dolls behind me. Um, anyway, sorry, I got distracted. I looked down. I have a little monitor here where I can kind of see what's going on. There's a bunch of creepy dolls back there. So we'll call this the creepy doll sermon. Completely lost my train of thought. What was I saying? Oh, yeah. So he says, some of you are going to, um, you're going to see the kingdom of God very shortly. And the different options for that, right? There was like the resurrection, Pentecost, um, but one option is just let the text speak for itself. And that one way that they were seeing the kingdom of God is what we see here in um, what we, uh, this passage that we call the transfiguration. So let's take a look at this passage. We're going we're to walk through it um, and we'll talk about what it means. Verse 28. Now, about eight days after these sayings, so after all that stuff, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. So eight days after talking about all that stuff with the, the um, be willing to take up your cross and follow me, Jesus takes just three of his disciples. See, three, I did it right that time. He takes three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, and they head up the mountain. Now, these guys were the inner circle, right? So there were a group of 70 or 72, depending on the, the variant there, but 70-something disciples, this big group. There was actually a bigger group than that that included the women and all that stuff, like Mary and all those guys, or ladies, I guess. Um, Mary and all them. Then there's like the hundred and something disciples. Then there's or the sorry the seventy something disciples. Then there's the twelve. But then inside the twelve, there's even this core group who kind of end up being leaders in the early church: Peter, James, and John. And uh, John and James are these two brothers. Peter is probably the oldest disciple. And so Jesus takes these three away from the other nine, and they head up the mountain. Now the mountain, again, if you remember, we talked about, they're right near a little, uh, uh, not a little city, like a uh, city called Caesarea Philippi. And it's a city at the foot of Mount Hermon, which is uh, the largest mountain, the largest peak in um, 
the land of Israel. And so they walk up what Mark in his um, telling of this story, he calls it a high mountain. Uh, Mount Hermon is about 9,500 feet. It's about the same height as uh, the top of it. About, I don't know, isn't it Lake Tahoe? About 9,500 feet. And so they probably didn't climb all the way up the entire snow-covered peak of this mountain, but they got up pretty high. And that's an important just sort of side theme in this story. Anyone familiar with the Old Testament would see this idea about the mountain and they would go, oh, something's about to happen. Because a lot of times when you read in the Old Testament about mountains, you realize that's where God shows up. He tested Abraham's faith on Mount Moriah. He appeared to... Um, to Moses at uh, Mount Sinai at the burning bush. He, again, at most Mount Sinai, he gives the Ten Commandments and establishes the law. Again, on Mount Moriah, um, Solomon builds the temple where God's presence literally comes down and shows up in a pillar of fire when they dedicated it. It was at the top of Mount Carmel where Elijah does this big standoff with the um, with the priests of Baal, and God shows up and um, consumes the sacrifice. It was at Mount Horeb that God spoke to Elijah in the still small voice. And so when when Luke is using this idea of the mountain, right, when he's talking about this, it's not just because it happened on a mountain. He's telling you that on purpose. He's saying this is where God shows up. God shows up on these mountaintops or whatever, right? Um, this sort of this theme of get ready for God to show up. He's setting the stage. So they're heading up the mountain to pray. Now, there's two things that are important here. Um, the first is Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray by praying with them. The second thing is, remember, he's the spirit-filled Messiah. Jesus is the, um, uh, he's he is deity, he is God, but at the same time, he's also a human. And he lived his life in the power of the Holy Spirit, setting aside a lot of his divine rights. And so he lived life the same way we do, completely dependent on God. And his relationship with God, uh, from what we see, is amazing. And we constantly see him in these big moments. And before big moments in his life, he's praying. Before he picks the disciples, before he heads to the cross. Here's another one, right? Before the transfiguration, Jesus is praying. So let's read the actual sort of the, the transfiguration. Verse 29. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. Now, Luke doesn't use the exact same language that Mark does and Matthew does when they're talking about this in their Gospels. In Mark, um, the way he puts it is, and Jesus was, I think he says, transfigured before them. He was transfigured. Okay, so that's an important word that Luke doesn't use, um, but Mark does. So most of us have probably heard that, and if you read in your Bible, right, there's a little the little section header says the transfiguration. What does that mean? Um, we've heard that language, but just kind of church talk, right? Well, what's happening here? Well, let me try to explain this as best I can. Um, the Greek word is metamorpho, metamorpho, morpho, I think. Um, my Greek's rusty. Anyway, it's the same word that we get, like the root that we get the word metamorphosis from. And the literal definition here is to change or uh, transform, right? And so that's what happened up on the mountain. Jesus transformed. Um, one commentator put like this. Let me read this to you. He says, The verb refers to an outward change that comes from within. It was not a, a change merely in appearance, but it was a complete change in another form. On earth, uh, Jesus appeared as a man, a poor carpenter from Nazareth, turned itinerant preacher. But at the transfiguration, Jesus' body was transformed into the glorious radiance that he had before coming to earth uh, and which he will have when he returns in glory to establish his kingdom. Right, so that's a really good little definition there. Um, John 1, 1, you know this verse, right? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It clearly tells us that Jesus is God. He is divine. He's the second member of the Trinity, and um, uh, he, 
he claims it on multiple occasions, right? He wasn't just a great teacher, an example. He was God on earth. But Paul tells us what Jesus did with that divinity, right? What did Jesus do as a human being here on earth who was fully God and fully man? What did he do with his divinity? In Philippians, and we talked about this a bunch when we were talking early on about Jesus as the spirit-filled Messiah, but Paul puts it this way in Philippians. He says, have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So when it says that, when Paul says that Jesus emptied himself of his deity, it doesn't mean that he stopped being God. It means he, he took the privileges and the power and the right, and he set that stuff aside. And we said this before, right? He lived his life as a human being empowered by the Holy Spirit, right? And so he took the divinity, added it to the humanity. But while he was here, right, he was living his life as a human. He became uh, one of us, right? But while uh, he was one of us, right, with the full the full essence and being of God, when he walked around, he just looked like every regular Joe Schmo, right? And in theology, the big theological term that you don't really need to remember is called the hypostatic union, right? The union of Jesus's two natures. He's fully human, fully um, divine. One theologian put it like this, and this is important, right? Remaining what he was, he was divine. He became what he was not, human. Um, and so we have this this Messiah, right? This guy who's fully God and is is fully human, and here he goes up on the mountain and he is transfiguration, uh, trans, transfigured, right? He's changed. So what exactly happened here? What are the disciples looking at when they see Jesus? He starts glowing and all this stuff. Um, the, the Victorian era preacher who I quote a lot because I really love Chuck Spurgeon, right? Charles Spurgeon. He said this, for Christ to be glorious was almost less a matter than for him to restrain or hide his glory. Um, it is uh, <clears throat> It is forever his glory that he concealed his glory, and that, though he was rich for our sakes, became poor. So Spurgeon basically there, what he's saying is the more impressive thing is not that Jesus was glowing on the top of the mountain. It's that sometimes he wasn't, right? The hiding of it is what's really um, Im- impressive. Uh, the hiding of it is what's really impressive. Like, I like this analogy. It's like holding your breath, right? It's not natural. It's not who you are. You're a breather, right? Hopefully you're a breather. Uh, sometimes, though, for certain reasons, you have to hold your breath. Um, by the way, I'm terrible... You know, some people like are great swimmers. Melissa's a great swimmer. She swims in the bay and stuff. I'm a terrible swimmer. I didn't learn how to swim until I was an adult. And she always makes fun of me because I can't do that thing where I breathe out of my nose when I'm underwater. Because every time I get underwater, I just completely freak out. And I go, oh, no, I'm underwater. And I suck all the water into my nose and then I'm coughing and everything. Anyway, some, there, you know, sometimes, though, you have to be good at that. You have to hold your breath and you have to manage that. But as soon as you can, as soon as you do get to the surface of the water, what do you do? You take a deep breath and it feels good. And so... For Jesus to hide his glory and to hide who he really was, was kind of like God holding his breath. And here, Jesus is on top of the mountain with his buddies for just a couple of minutes, and he just lets it out, right? He just, he takes a deep breath, and it just feels good for a second to be, um, you know, to show these guys who he really was. Now, why? Why would he do this now, and why does he do it at the top of Mount Hermon? Well, um, verse 29 right there tells us that he does this before them, right? That means these three disciples, Peter, James, and John. This was for this whole miracle is for the benefit of these three guys. It's not for Jesus. Jesus knows who he is, right? This isn't the miracle to say, um, whoa, Jesus, look, you're still God, like he had kind of forgot, right? And this is the key to everything that happens here. Jesus is transfigured so that these guys would see it. He's, he, he's morphed. He's changed into who he really is. He gives them this glimpse of who he really is. Now, look closely at this description again. Let me read you verse 29 one more time. 
Um, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. That's very important description, the way that Luke words that. Um, any good Old Testament student, which all of the people, you know, Peter, James, and John, these guys would have been, um, would immediately read this and think of Daniel chapter 7, this passage that we call the Ancient of Days. Look at this. I'm going to read this to you from 7, uh, Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. And as I looked, the thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand uh, times ten thousand stood before him. Oh, sorry. I just looked into the, my... my <laughs> I was reading that, and I looked right, and I have a little light right here. Anyway... Um, <laughs> Uh, 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were open. So there's this passage in Daniel 7 um, that uh, Jesus, or sorry, um, John picks up when he's writing the book of Revelation to John, who's sitting here watching this transfiguration. And um, uh, Mark picks up some of this imagery too. Anyway, uh, where Jesus is is divine. He, he is this ancient of days. He existed before time and he'll exist after time. And what the disciples get here is in this transfiguration is a picture of the ancient of days. This guy that they've been they've been um, talking about uh, since Daniel chapter seven, right? So um, they get to see Jesus, a little glimpse of Jesus for who he really is, the eternal God, right? He's pictured as perfectly pure, blazing white clothes that nobody on earth uh, could ever. I think one of them says that, right? Like uh, one of the other gospels says, like his clothes were so white that nobody, no launderer on earth could ever get them that that clean, right? Your dry cleaner can't get clothes as white as Jesus's clothes here. And so don't mistake what they're seeing here, right? This is important too, with that word transfiguration. The light is not shining on Jesus, right? This isn't a really bright spotlight. Like honestly, this thing that I put in a really bad place that I probably should have put somewhere else, but so you guys can actually see me. Um, this is not a really bright spotlight. Jesus is the light. Um, in the Pentateuch, right? We're told about how, um, you know, the first five books of the Bible, we're told how Moses spent time with God. And when Moses spent time with God, uh, he would come out of his tent and the people would see that, oh, he's been with God. His face is literally shining because he had been in God's presence. And so the people of Israel, what they did was they came up with this like veil thing and because, they were, you know, Moses is glowing, right? He's freaking the people out. So they put this thing over his face, right? Hey, put a bag on your head. We don't want to look at you kind of a thing. So, um, but here's the thing. Moses, what was happening there was he was reflecting the light of God. Here, though, Jesus is not reflecting anything. He is the shining light. Right? Think of it like this. When we look up at the sky in the daytime, what do we see? We see the sun. The sun's light shines down and lights up our whole world, right? It's so bright that we can't look directly at it. But at night, we look up and we see what? The moon. Um, the moon, though, it doesn't really shine at all. All it's doing is reflecting the light that's coming off of the sun. And the best way to describe God's glory is to think of it like sunlight. And, um, you know, where it just sort of radiates out, right? Who he is radiates out into the world. Now, Moses was like the moon. He came from the presence of God and he reflected, um, when he came from the presence of God, he reflected the, the light of God's glory so that the people could see. That's not what's happening here with Jesus. Jesus is not reflecting the light of God's glory. He's showing the light of God's glory. He's not the moon. Jesus is the sun. The glory is flowing directly from him. And on top of this mountain, sitting with these three disciples, they get to see it. Uh, they get to see Jesus in all of his glory. Um, John Calvin, who was a, um, 
what would that be? I always forget, like a 16th century reformer. He said this, the transfiguration did not altogether enable the disciples to see Christ as he is now in heaven, but it gave them a taste of his boundless glory, such as they were able to comprehend. So they didn't really get to see the ancient of days in all of his glory, like is described in Daniel chapter seven. But, you know, they got a small taste, right? They got like a little peek, a sneak peek at what, at who Jesus really is and this glory of God. And as they look up, and see um, Jesus transfigured and shining, they notice something. Oh, wait, he's not by himself, right? Look at verse 30. Uh, where am I? Yeah, verse 30. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. So first we have Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah representing sort of the two parts of the Old Testament, right? The law and the prophets. Moses was the greatest leader of the people of Israel. He was the lawgiver. Elijah was considered the greatest prophet. And Jesus is the one that we've been talking about in um, the book of Luke. He's the one who fulfills the entire Old Testament. So that's the first thing. It's just these two guys represent that. The second thing is they were really there. Um, They were actually there. This wasn't a vision. This wasn't a dream. Moses and Elijah came down from heaven to hang out with Jesus for a few minutes. And I think this is pretty cool. This gives us a glimpse at what the disciples were really learning here. It gives the disciples, these disciples, they sort of got that glimpse of eternity that's going to help drive them to be the kind of people who are willing to take up a cross and follow Jesus. Um, But it's just, as you think about it, it's amazing, right? Elijah was taken up into heaven um, in the chariot of fire and that whole story while Elisha was watching um, 700 years, about 700 years before Jesus. Think about that. That's a while, right? Moses died about, I think it's like 1500 years before Jesus. But here are these two guys gone from earth for 700 and something years and for 1500 years hanging out with Jesus. And somehow the disciples looked up and knew exactly who they were. And my guess is, and the text does not specifically say this, but my guess is they weren't wearing name tags. You know, hello, my name is Elisha. My name is Moses, right? They probably, the, the disciples, they probably just knew, right? And um, most scholars agree that this is kind of neat because this is what heaven's going to be like, right? We're going to walk around. We're going to know who we are, even though we may have not met each other. I don't know. I mean, might be reading too much into that, but I think it's kind of cool. But it's important, just sort of a side lesson. Don't think of heaven as, and I say this a lot, but don't think of heaven as fat little babies playing harps on floating clouds and everybody's just bored out of their minds. Heaven is tangible. You have a body, you'll have friends, you'll probably have a job, I don't know. Um, maybe work will be like it was before the fall. You're gonna know everybody. You're gonna walk around and be like, hey, Moses, right? Hey, Elijah, you know, hey, Daniel and Esther and <clears throat> grandpa, right? We're gonna, it, but we're gonna have real actual bodies. And looking at these two guys must have made that seem so real to these disciples. Um, They learned a valuable lesson here that this life is only the beginning and death is not the end, right? And uh, if you're a believer, death is just the transition from this earth to the second, you know, the new heavens and new earth into eternity. Um, And there might be some stuff in between there, but this is not the place for eschatology, like, you know, studying the end times. Um, Anyway, and I heard this preacher once who, I mean, I like this analogy, even though this preacher turned out to be an idiot. Um, But uh, I heard this preacher once say that someday you're going to get to heaven and you're going to be there for, you know, 50,000 years or whatever. And you're going to look back at your time, your 80, whatever years, if you have that, if you're lucky enough to have that on this earth, you're going to look back at this time. uh, Like right now as an adult, you look back at second grade and think about one recess. You know, I love that. It just helps with that eternal perspective. And seeing these two prophets show up here must have had a serious impact on these disciples. But even more than that, 
even more than just seeing them, they actually heard them talk. Look what they're talking about. Verse 31. So, verse 30, right? They're there with Moses and Elijah. Jesus is there. They're chatting it up. Verse 31, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. So, th these guys, it says they appeared in glory, which is important, right? Because, like, our bodies are broken and they don't work. And I have slipped disc in my back and um, ligament damage. And is that what he said? Ligament damage? I think that's what he said. And so I have to preach sitting in a chair because right now I can hardly stand up. But eventually, this is not how it's all going to be, right? Eventually, we're going to have these sort of renewed bodies, these resurrected bodies. Things are going to be a lot better and we're going to be in our ultimate glorious state, right? So these guys, uh, and we're not going to get into the timeline of eschatology and what kind of bodies these guys had now. But I mean, the point is, right, these guys really appeared. They appeared in glory and they're standing here. They're talking to Jesus about his departure, right? What, <clears throat> and the word there is exodus, his exodus, what he was about to accomplish, right? So Jesus had just started teaching his disciples about his death and resurrection. Now he's talking to Moses and Elijah about it. And this is part of the way that Luke in uh, writing this book is showing us how Jesus is now um, pivoting his ministry and he's heading towards the cross. He's heading towards Jerusalem, but not to be tricked and then executed, but to fulfill the plan of God for our salvation. Um, and so like Luke is purposely putting that like this, this, crucifixion that we're going to read about at the end of Luke was not an accident, right? This was Jesus's mission. He was heading there. He was talking with Moses and Elijah about what was about to happen to him. So the disciples, though, are there, um, and Luke kind of jumps back a little bit and sort of tells what's really been going on. Have you ever been, like, caught napping um, and somebody else's either, like, conversation wakes you up uh, and then you get up and you pretend like you weren't napping because for some reason, you know, if you sleep in our culture, you're a terrible person and sleep is bad, even though sleep is wonderful and great and everybody should nap constantly, right? Wasn't Winston Churchill took a couple of naps every day and if it's good enough for Churchill, it's good enough for me. Anyway, so you ever done that and then you pretend like you weren't napping, but you totally were napping and everybody knows you were napping? That's basically what happens next. Look at verse 32. Uh, now Peter and those who with him... Uh, <clears throat> Those who were with him, so uh, James and John, were heavy with sleep, but they became fully awake and saw the glory and the two men who stood with him. So I just love that little detail. Ironically, this is exactly what happens in Gethsemane, right? Jesus takes his disciples up. Can you just pray with me for a while? They can't pray. They're falling asleep. Um, anyway, you know, I, I like the idea of like how just real this is. These guys were tired. They just hiked up a mountain. And I also love that Peter, by the way, is like my spirit animal with all these naps, right? He's napping here. He's napping in Gethsemane. The night before he thought he was going to be executed in the book of Acts, what is he doing? He's sleeping, right? This is a guy who loves a good nap. So anyway, Peter wakes up and he sees these guys. He hears this conversation. And then verse 33, um, and as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, so the, Elijah and Moses start to leave. Peter says to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents for you and one for one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he had said. So Luke tells us that when all this went down, right, uh, these disciples, they were napping and they wake up and, you know, they start to see all this stuff and they're listening to this conversation. And then when it looks like Moses and Elijah are starting to pack their bag and get ready to go, um, uh, Peter, in his moment of just exhaustion and stupidity, blurts out, well, Jesus, it's good that I'm here. Okay, okay, that's hilarious, right? Uh, it's good that I'm here. Let me put up three tents, one for each of you. Now, Mark then adds this little note. And I think this is really interesting. Mark adds this little note. He said this because he was terrified, right? Because he didn't know what he was saying. He was scared. And if you remember, the Gospel of Mark 
um, well, the Gospel of Luke. Luke was like an investigative reporter who went around and interviewed everybody and compiled all the information. Mark, though, mostly got his information, according to church history, uh, from Peter himself. And so uh, that little detail, Peter told Mark, dude, I was so scared. I had no idea. And I said the stupidest thing that I possibly could have said. Um, and so Peter is, you know, he's really kind of adding that comment, right? I, I just, I was terrified and I blurted out the first dumb thing that popped into my head. Now, what did Peter say that was so bonehead? Um boneheaded, right? Well, this happened around the time of what the Jewish folks called the Feast of Tabernacles, where during that time, um, people would of Israel would sleep in tents on their roof and that sort of thing um, to remind themselves how they spent 40 years living in tents, wandering in the desert. It was one of the, the, the Jewish holidays every year. Now, Peter saw these three and he realized, okay, God is here, right? This is, a, we're on top of this mountain. I see all Jesus is shining. Um, Moses and Elijah here. This is like a pretty serious situation. And he knew he was in God's presence. And so what he did was he offered, oh, let's celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles together because what he wanted God to stick around. Maybe if they have somewhere to stay, these guys will be here and this experience would last longer. And actually what a lot of folks think is what's really interesting too is he probably still didn't completely understand what was going on. And he was probably putting Moses and Elijah on the same level as Jesus. Let me make all three of you guys a tent. Um, and uh, you guys can hang out and talk some more. Um, uh, anyway, so in the middle of making this suggestion, right, uh, look what happens in verse 34. So Peter, you know, he's saying these dumb things. He's just, he doesn't know what he's talking about. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. So this cloud comes down and Moses and Elijah and Jesus walk in this cloud and the disciples walk in behind them. Now, the cloud is very important. Again, as you're reading the Old Testament, these themes continue into the New Testament. Clouds were super important because, again, just like the mountain, a cloud is another symbol of God's presence in the Old Testament. The cloud was the presence of God the Father. It, in Old Testament, they called it the Shekinah glory of God. It was the pillar that stood by Israel in the wilderness in Exodus 13. It was the cloud of glory that God spoke to Israel he spoke to Israel from this cloud at Mount Sinai in Exodus 16. It was the cloud of glory that stood by the door of the tabernacle in Exodus 33. It was from this cloud that God appeared to the high priest in the holy place uh, inside the veil in Leviticus 16. It was the cloud, it was, um, sorry, from this cloud, right, that uh, God showed up when Solomon dedicated the temple in 1 Kings 8 and in 2 Chronicles uh, 5. It was the cloud in Ezekiel's vision that filled the temple with the glory and the brightness of God in uh, Ezekiel chapter 10. It was the cloud that uh, received Jesus into heaven after his ascension in Acts chapter 1. It was the same cloud that displayed the glory of Jesus Christ when um, he when he's going to return in his triumph to earth, right? And um, uh, he talks about that. We'll get to that in Luke 21, right? So all this stuff, this cloud is just like, this is the presence of God himself. And so in the middle of Peter putting his foot in his mouth and saying all these dumb things, this cloud shows up. The cloud, the Shekinah glory of God comes in. It overcomes them all. And, you know, they all walk into this cloud and then verse 35. So they're in the cloud and a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. That's super important. Now, there's a voice, and this reminds us so much of Jesus' baptism, right? Where Jesus goes into the water, and this voice booms over the crowd. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. That voice was directed at Jesus. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Here, though, the voice is not directed at Jesus. It's directed at Peter and the disciples. Um, almost correcting maybe how he was putting them on the same level 
as Jesus, these two, Moses and Elijah. Maybe it was correcting Peter when, do you remember Peter rebuked Jesus for saying that the Messiah was going to suffer? Maybe they had been having conversations about this take up your cross thing while they're walking around and living in this area for a little while. The disciples are sitting around the campfire arguing about, and we're going to get to this in just a little bit here, um, about, you know, well, I still want to be the greatest and all this stuff, and I don't want to suffer. I don't want to carry up my cross. And then this booming voice pops up and says, you know, um, uh, this is my son, right? Listen to him, right? Listen to him. You should listen to Jesus. That's really good advice. Um, and again, right, the context tells us why God is telling these disciples to listen. Right? They're in the middle of all this hard teaching about suffering, and they just had these wrong ideas about the Messiah. And so God now is coming up and saying, no, 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 Jesus knows what he's talking about. He's not some prophet, right? He's my son, and you need to listen to what he's telling you. And then the ending of this passage in verse 36, and when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. So all of a sudden, the cloud says, listen to him, right? This is my son, listen to him. And then all of a sudden, boom, everything's back to normal. The disciples kind of rub their eyes and they look over and it's just normal Jesus standing there, you know, the bag of corn nuts throwing one in his mouth. He says, that was pretty cool, huh? Right? And the disciples are just completely shocked. And it says that they, you know, they left and they didn't tell anybody. Now in Mark, Jesus actually tells them, don't tell anybody about this yet, right? Not yet. And, um, and then on the way down the mountain, there's this whole discussion about what they had just seen. And in Mark, he talks more about that. If you want to go read it, we're not going to read it now. But they're still, what they're doing, they're just trying to process Jesus's identity. Who is this man, right? That's the question in Luke. Who is this guy? And now we just saw him like the glory of God hanging out with Moses and Elijah. And they're trying to figure it out and they're having a tough time doing it. And then they get down to the bottom of the mountain and there's a boy with an unclean spirit. We're going to read that passage next week. But Anyway, I spend a lot of time when I'm teaching these passages, I spend a lot of time reading the passages and um, just studying them. And honestly, this passage, uh, I've taught a handful of times at my old church. I taught the one, the version of this from Mark. I've taught this, I think I taught this at Christ Church. I don't remember. Um, I've taught this a few times before. And as I was looking at the passage, though, this week and I was writing this sermon, um, something really interesting to me popped off the page. And one of the things I was thinking about was the early church. And... Uh, I was thinking about the, the, the book of Acts, which I taught at my old church all the way through, at uh, Dolores Park Church. I taught it all the way through. And um, I was thinking about Peter's preaching, especially. Um, he was here. Peter was here at Mount Hermon to watch the transfiguration. He saw Jesus all of a sudden start just shining and glowing and turn dazzling white and turn into the ancient of days, right? And let that glory shine forth. He saw the divinity of Jesus shining through. And actually, in that, that sermon... Um, this sermon, in this sermon series, we name them all something with the king in it, right? So the king transformed is what I called this sermon. But at the old church, we didn't have that. And so I called this sermon, I think, uh, Jesus, your divinity is showing. Right? I thought that was funny, right? So Jesus's divinity shines through. But here's the thing. When Peter starts to preach to the crowds, and when he starts to tell people about Jesus, after the resurrection, all that stuff, this mountaintop experience of the transfiguration, like that had really... Uh, impacted him, he doesn't really talk about it. And I thought that was really interesting. It seems so counterintuitive because let me tell you a story. If my best friend told me he was God, then took me up on a mountaintop and started glowing. And then he's like, Hey, have you met Moses and Elijah? <clears throat> and then a booming cloud of the Shekinah glory of God says, Hey, that's actually my son. You should probably listen to him. Let me tell you, if that happened to me and my best friend, every sermon I ever preached would be 
Like I would be one of those preachers with one illustration and I would beat it to death. And I would tell everybody, dude, let me tell you about my best friend. One time I went up on this mountain, you guys would think I was nuts, like those people who think they were abducted by aliens and just tell everybody about it. But let me show you how Peter preaches. I think this is super interesting. All right. So what I want to do is I want to read to you kind of a long passage here from Acts chapter 3. So let me just set the stage here for what's going on. In Acts chapter 2, which I also could have read the sermon there, the Pentecost sermon where Peter preaches, the Spirit falls, Peter preaches, and thousands of people come to faith. Um, then after that, they go, uh, Peter and John head into the temple, and they heal this guy. And because they heal this guy, and he says, like, I heal you in the name of Jesus, you know, all of a sudden this crowd gathers and is like, hey, what's going on? You want to teach us about what you're doing? And so in this sermon, Peter, look at what he says. This is his sermon, and uh, it's, this is a sermon he's, he preaches at the porch, right? Solomon's porch, which is where we, get, where we get the name for our church, right? Because this is, the early, this is a place the early church gathered, was at a place called Solomon's porch. Anyway, so look at this. <clears throat> Verse 11, while he clung to Peter, that's the guy who'd just been healed. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico or the porch called Solomon's. When Peter saw it, he addressed the people. So Peter now, he stands up and he addresses the people. He says, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety, we have made him walk. We, you know, as a, as, as a, we made this guy walk. He says, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant, Jesus, whom you delivered uh, who you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as uh, did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come in the presence of the Lord, and that may, he may send the Christ... Uh, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the times for restoring all things about which uh, God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses, the Lord, <clears throat> Moses said, the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. And uh, it shall be that uh, every soul uh, who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from all the people. And the people and all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and to those who came after him also proclaimed in these days, you are the son of the prophets, the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham again, yeah, uh, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. And then... Um, uh, then they get arrested, right? But anyway, so that is such an interesting sermon because in this sermon, the guy who was at the Mount of Transfiguration, he actually talks about Moses specifically. And you know what he doesn't say? He doesn't say, "I." by the way, guys, I met Moses. Me and Moses were hanging out. No, he doesn't. He doesn't say that. And then again, he talks a little bit later and he talks about um, the prophets who came after Moses even pointed to Jesus, right? And that's Elijah, right? And so... He doesn't do that. This is not 
the transfiguration is not the mountaintop experience that Jesus, um, sorry, that Peter is preaching about, right? What he does is he t- teaches about something else. Do you see what's the center of his preaching? It's not when Jesus showed, sorry, it's not when Jesus showed his divinity and all of his glory. It's when Jesus showed Peter his humility, right? When the divine was crucified, put to death by the hands of lawless men. Why? So that the forgiveness of God could be offered to all different kinds of people and people could enter the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God could go forward. See, that's the mountaintop experience that really impacted Peter. And so here's what this passage really teaches us. I think I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but there was a religious scholar um, in a documentary that I was watching about the... um, the Heaven's Gate cult. And this religious scholar was talking about how uh, religions pivot based off of circumstances and how nobody expected Jesus to die. But then when he died, all the disciples had to pivot everything that they believed and come up with this lie about the resurrection and all this stuff. Anyway, this guy was like a religious, like, you know, professor of religious studies or whatever. Anyway, like basically his, his idea was death wasn't the plan and that Jesus was this good teacher who was executed, but he just didn't expect it. Sorry, no, right? Nothing in the New Testament says that that's kind of what happened, right? God, Jesus was God become a man. And when he finally did take, um, you know, took a deep breath and let his divinity show, the disciples got to see who he really was. This is not something they were making up. But then fast forward, what do we see? Who is this Jesus? Who is this ancient of days? What does he do? He's carrying a cross, a Roman cross. And like we talked about last week, he's he's tied to the beam and he's falling down with nothing to support himself when he hits the ground except his face. He's covered in blood. He's been whipped and beaten and he is suffering in agony. And he lays down, the Ancient of Days lays down on the ground and they nail his arms into the, the, the cross beam of a Roman cross. Then they lift him up and they nail him through the feet or the ankles or whatever into the cross. And there he hangs, life slipping away, struggling for breath in complete and utter agony. Where's the light now? Where are Moses and Elijah? Where's God? Surely he could have stopped all this. The answer is, yeah, he could have. But he endured it all. God was crucified. The Ancient of Days was crucified so that Peter could be saved, so that you could be saved, so that I could be saved. That's the center of our faith. That's why Peter doesn't get up and talk about the transfiguration on Mount Hermon when he's preaching in Acts 2, when he's preaching in Acts 3. He gets up and he talks about Jesus' death and the humiliation on a different mountain, on Mount Calvary. This amazing being, this ancient of days, willingly did that for Peter. Willingly did that for you and willingly did that for me. So how do we apply that idea? How do we apply that thought? I don't know. I mean, honestly, I don't have three steps for you to think about that. Here's how you apply it. Really, really think about that. Meditate on it and then just be blown away. Be blown away by that truth that the ancient of days, this God, the creator, became a man, right? He showed his disciples who he really was, and then he carried his cross up the hill at uh, Golgotha, at Mount Calvary. Let me end by just reading you this passage, right? I want to read to you the last verse. I'm going to read the whole passage now, but that last verse especially from when Paul was talking about who Jesus was. And then I just want you, I just want to leave you with, um, you know, this thought. And um, then I'll see you guys at the picnic in a couple of minutes, right? If you're watching this on Sunday morning. So I want to read this to you from Philippians 2. This is 2, I'm going to read 5 through 11. So having this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has exalted him, highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Guys, that's the point of the passage. The transfiguration's cool. The cross is even cooler. But what the transfiguration does is it shows us even, it gives us a better perspective on even how much more amazing uh, the cross is and that Jesus did that for you. And so here's your application. I don't know, just think about that. Just meditate on it and be blown away by it and then spend some time with the Lord praying and thanking him for that. Amen, let me pray. Lord, we do thank you for um, the cross and um, you know we want just your work of redemption and your humility um, to be the center of who we are as a church. We want to be focused on you and the gospel. And um, I thank you, Lord, that we are going to spend eternity being taken into deeper and deeper levels of just understanding um, how wonderful you are and how wonderful what you did for us on the cross was. And so I just pray for our church, Lord, and I just pray that we would be blown away by you. And we pray that that would impact us so much that we would be willing to to take up our crosses and follow you and be glad to do it, that we would be willing to sacrifice um, and serve and love the people around us, Um, not because they deserve it, Lord, but because we're just so blown away by you and your love for us that we want to spread that love around. And so, you know, we pray for our city, we pray for our neighbors, and we just ask that you would give us opportunities and put, put them in our path and to show us ways to, to love them as much as you love us. You're an amazing God. We thank you and we love you. Amen.